Brothers and sisters, I ask that you would turn in your Bibles again to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we will be at the end of that chapter. When we left Jesus and the apostles last, the disciples were in their boat battling a fierce storm on the Sea of Galilee. They were miles from the shore that they had left and still a mile or two from the shore to which they were headed. The Lord Jesus had just miraculously fed 5,000-plus people with five loaves and two, uh, two fish. He had dismissed the crowd. Then he had gone up on a mountain to pray. And from his vantage point at that mountain, he saw his disciples straining at the oars. Now, we said that he likely did not see them with the eyes of flesh. They were out there on a stormy night, about three miles. But he did see them with the eye of omniscience. Our Lord is all-knowing. And he saw them straining at the oars. There was a fierce wind, a fierce storm had blown up, and they were not able to fight against it and make any headway against that storm. They were literally, the Greek says, being tormented by the wind and by the waves. Our Lord Jesus then proceeds to head toward them, walking on the water, calmly and at ease. And then we read that enigmatic statement that he intended to pass them by. Have you ever wondered what that meant? Well, I think we have some light shed on that. He wasn't intending to pass them by to mock them as he's walking calmly on the water and they're struggling with the waves and the wind. We noted that the same word, pass by, in the Greek is used in the Greek Old Testament in Exodus 33 and 34. When the Lord, Yahweh, passed by Moses, and he did so to assure Moses that he was with Moses and with the people and to reveal his glory. And it appears that Jesus, in seeking to pass them by, was seeking to identify with Yahweh, with Almighty God, seeking to assure his disciples that he was with them and to reveal his glory to them, the glory of the living God, Almighty God, Yahweh. When they look at him and they think that, that, that he is a ghost, they're terrified. And Jesus then calms their fears with the words, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And I noted that the words, it is I, is the familiar ego a me, I am. That was how God, and this is the way it is in the Greek in the Old Testament, how God identified himself to Moses. When Moses wanted to know, who is it that is sending me to you, Pharaoh? The Lord revealed his official name, Yahweh. Ego me. I am that I am. And Jesus, as he does in the Gospel of John, appears to be identifying again with Yahweh. The one who is with you is no other than Yahweh of the Old Testament. Ego me. I am that I am. And then the crowning revelation that Jesus gives to his disciples, and they really needed it because they still did not have a faith that was up to muster the crowning revelation Jesus gives is when he steps on the boat and immediately the wind ceases. That was no coincidence. He was saying to them, the one who was with them is the one who has power over disease, power over demons, power over death, and power over the forces of nature because he is the very creator. Now, I pick up in our text in verses 53 to 56 of Mark 6. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. 
When they got out of the boat immediately, the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Now, in verse 45 of Mark 6, it says they were on their way to Bethsaida. Remember, there were two Bethsaidas. There was a Bethsaida. They are now on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. That's Bethsaida of Galilee. They're going over to the west side of the sea. That's Bethsaida Julius. Now, you say two towns by the name Bethsaida. Well, Bethsaida means house of, of fishing. And that was the main industry on the Lake of Galilee. It was like fish town. So it's not unusual for there to be more than one fish town. They were going from Bethsaida to Bethsaida. Now, John's account does say that after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. Wait a minute. Are they going to Bethsaida or are they going to Capernaum? No contradiction. Bethsaida was a little village that was attached to the larger city of Capernaum. It's kind of like where we live. Somebody asks, where do you live? I might say Upper Euclid Township. But my mailing address is Downingtown, because Downingtown is the larger town to which Upper Euclid Township is connected. But that's not where they land. They land at a place called Gennesaret, and Gennesaret was actually not a town. It was a fertile plain that extended for about three miles on the uh, eastern, western shore of the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum down to Tiberias. And it was very fertile ground, a well-watered, rich soil. Apparently, you could grow, even if you didn't have a green thumb, you could grow almost anything in that fertile plain. Now, the question is, how did they end up landing in this area? Well, according to commentators, either the winds blew them a little bit south of their destination, or they landed at Capernaum and then continued on down to Gennesaret. Where they landed is not as important as the response they received from the people of Gennesaret. I want to note four things. And the first is this. The people of Gennesaret recognized Jesus immediately. Look at verse 54. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Now, Jesus had not been to Gennesaret. How is it that they recognized him? Well, it says in Matthew that the men recognized him, likely because they had been to Capernaum where Jesus had done a lot of his wonders. Not so much the women, they were probably at home with children, but the men out and about because of their vocation perhaps, they had occasion to witness what Jesus did in Capernaum. Remember some of the things Jesus did in Capernaum. It was there in the synagogue that he taught with authority, not as the scribes, and he cast an unclean spirit out of a demonized man. Later that day, after he healed Peter's mother-in-law, the whole city gathered to Jesus, and late into the night, he healed them and cast out demons. When he went away and then came back to Capernaum, the people thronged to his door. And that was the occasion when not being able to get through the door, those four friends brought the man on the pallet, the crippled man, and literally lowered him through a roof, the roof, and put him in front of Jesus, and Jesus healed the crippled man. It was, um, then he went, uh, it was in that same synagogue or a nearby synagogue that he healed the man with the withered hand, and then down by the seaside, he healed many people. 
It was on that side of the sea near Capernaum where the woman with the issue of blood was healed and where Jesus raised the dead daughter of Jairus uh, to life again. And so besides perhaps hearing about Jesus, some of the men of Gennesaret had likely witnessed his works of wonder firsthand. And so when he got out of the boat, they recognized him. Literally, it says he was known by them. He's recognized as the one who had mighty power. He had the power to heal diseases, the power to cast out demons. He had power to rule nature. And he would have been recognized not only as a powerful one, but as a compassionate one. They would have known that Jesus was willing to stay late into the night to heal people and to cast out demons. He would push himself to the point of physical and emotional exhaustion at times. He would never turn down an earnest supplicant. And so they recognized in Jesus one who was able, but also one who was willing. So he steps from the boat, and immediately the people, in particular the men, recognized him. But then next, note that the people of Gennesaret seized this choice opportunity to seek Jesus. Verses 55 and 6. They recognized him, and they ran about that whole country, began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were being cured. No sooner did they set eyes on Jesus and recognize who he was, that it was like a surge of electricity went through them and jolted them into action. They sprang into activity. They ran about the whole country and let's pause for a minute and look at that word, they ran about the whole country. It's the word used in Jeremiah 5.1, just to get a sense of the urgency that these people had. Let me share with you Jeremiah 5.1. In the Greek Old Testament, the same word is used. Jeremiah 5.1 reads like this. Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. And look now and take note and seek in her open squares. If you can find a man... If there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. Here's the picture. God is bringing judgment on Jerusalem. And much like God said to Abram when it came to Sodom, if you can find 10 righteous men, I will not destroy the city. God says through Jeremiah, if you can find one just person, one just man who loves the truth, I will spare Jerusalem. And so they're running about to and fro to try to find one man to stay the hand of God's judgment. The word is also used in Amos, Hosea, Joel, Amos, in Amos chapter 8 and verse 12. And there we read this. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro, there it is, to seek the word of the Lord but they will not find it. The situation is the people have not responded to the word of God, and God is threatening to take his word from them. And as a result, they're going to search desperately for it. And as I read that, I thought of human nature. Isn't it human nature to want something only when we can't have it? So you have a little group of toddlers, and a toddler is completely uninterested in a particular toy until another toddler picks it up. 
then all of a sudden that toddler number one, that's all he wants, she wants is that toy because he can't have it. Somebody else has it, right? It's human nature to want, not want something until it's taken away from us or, and we can't have it. And so it was with these people. The, the word was taken from them and God says through Amos that they will, they will run to and fro to find the word of God. And that's the word that is used in our narrative. The people of Gennesaret ran about the whole country. Why the hurry? Why the urgency? Because they recognized that it was such a great privilege to have this mighty and compassionate Jesus among them, and they didn't know how long he would stay. They had a golden opportunity, and they didn't want to pass it by. They didn't want it to slip through their fingers. They wanted to seize the opportunity while Jesus was in their midst. Consider if you're looking for a particular item, but it's too expensive and you're waiting for it to go on sale. And then you learn that there's a sale on that particular item at a particular store, but it ends on Friday night at nine o'clock. You look at your watch or your phone and you realize it's 7.30 on Friday night. And what do you do? You jump in your car, you hustle to get down to that store to take advantage of the sale to buy the commodity before it's too late. Or consider what sometimes happens. You're with a group of friends, either indoors or outdoors. In fact, this was the case last night with some friends over. And somebody looks out the window and says, look at that sunset. It's a beautiful sunset. And you know to run, not for your camera, because we have our cameras on our phones, but you want to run to your phone to take a picture of that sunset, the beautiful splash of reds and oranges and blues, because you know if you wait... One or two minutes later, and the sun's going to set, go below the horizon, and you won't have that beautiful palette of colors anymore. And so you rush to grab your camera, take a picture while you can. Well, that's where they were in Gennesaret. It was a unique opportunity. The men, at least, had seen Jesus in other places do his works of healing. But it was always other people's loved ones, other people's friends that Jesus had done these miracles for, no doubt as they saw Jesus do those miracles in other places, they might have thought about their own blind father, their own crippled child, their own deaf brother, their own leprous friend. And they thought if only Jesus could do that for them. And now he's here. He's among them. He's in their midst. And they didn't want to lose any time. They wanted to seize the opportunity while Jesus was among them. And so they pursue Jesus aggressively on behalf of others. The Lord Jesus, as was his pattern, was not staying in one place. He was going from village to city to countryside. And the people were not waiting for Jesus to come to them. They didn't have this lackadaisical ho-hum attitude. Well, if he comes our way, fine, you know, he'll heal. And if not... That's okay. Kesara, sera, whatever will be, will be. Not at all. They were aggressively pursuing Jesus. They would have, have had their contacts in various places to alert them. Jesus is here. Jesus is there. So that they could go where Jesus was. The most likely place to find Jesus would have been the marketplace. That's where people hung out. So they didn't wait for Jesus to come to their doorstep. They went out after him. They pursued him aggressively. And the people of Gennesaret were not so much doing it for themselves as they were doing it for others. They were bent on bringing others. They had sick friends, 
sick relatives who couldn't go to Jesus on their own. So what were they doing? They were putting them on, on, on beds. They were putting them on straw beds or pallets and carrying them to Jesus. What a care and concern these people had for their loved ones, for their friends who needed Jesus. They had one eye on Jesus, and they saw him as this powerful healer, but not only powerful, but compassionate and willing, and another eye on their needy, sick friends. And they were resolved to do this. I must get my loved one to Jesus. I must get my friend to Jesus. I must get my neighbor to Jesus. And then we see next that the people of Gennesaret implore Jesus earnestly, humbly, and believing. They recognize him. They've seen They know what he can do and what he has done for others. Now he's in their midst, and they want to seize the opportunity. While he is here, they run to and fro to bring their sick ones, their loved ones, to Jesus. And then they implore Jesus earnestly, humbly, and believing. Verse 56, the latter part. They were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. I say that their appeal to Jesus was earnest. The word translated implore is the word parakaleo. It's variously translated in the New Testament. It can mean to exhort, to encourage, to comfort. Here it means to beg or to beseech. It literally means parakaleo, to call to one's side. And they were earnestly beseeching Jesus to come to the side of their sick loved one, to attend that person, and to heal that person. There was a beseeching, there was a pleading. I say that their appeal was humble. They weren't asking Jesus to say anything or even do anything. They were simply asking that if they can just touch the fringe of your garment, Lord, they will be healed. It was a humble, self-effacing request. And then I say that the appeal was believing. They believed that if Jesus could just touch the fringe, if they could just touch the fringe of Jesus' garments, they would be healed. Such confidence they had in the power of Jesus. He didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to do anything. The power that emanated from him could be experienced if they just touched the fringe of his garment. And then finally we see that the people of Gennesaret are healed, all of them. Very beautifully at the end of verse 56, as many as touched it were being cured. The imperfect tense in the Greek, it was a continuous activity. They were being cured. One touches, he's healed. Another touches, he's healed. Another touches, he's healed. It was like an assembly line. Everyone who touched Jesus' garment was healed. No one failed to be cured. And the cure, as always, we don't even have to say it was a complete cure. Jesus never healed people partially, did he? The blind people who were healed were not left with nearsightedness or fuzzy vision. The deaf people were not left with one bad ear. The crippled people were not left with a limp. He cured them all. And we know, as was his pattern, he healed them completely and perfectly. Well, brothers and sisters, that's my exposition. 
fairly brief this morning, but I want to spend the rest of our time bringing this home to where we are living. What should we take away from this brief scenario of Jesus in Gennesaret, where he lands, gets out of the boat, they recognize him, they right away go to and fro to find their loved ones and friends, to bring them to Jesus that he might heal them. What can we take away? First, all of us need to see that Jesus Christ is a powerful and compassionate healer or savior. You know, the actual word for uh, cure or made well in verse 56 is the word sozo, which means to save. They were being saved. Now, although that word does refer to spiritual salvation, that's not what it means here. In Mark 5, 23, the woman who had a hemorrhage uh, for 12 years, it says, implored him, my little daughter is at the point of death. Oh, this was Jairus. Please come lay your hands on her that she will get saved. He means get well and live. Likewise, the woman in verse 28, she thought if I just touch his garments, I will get well. The word is sozo, I will get saved. But she's not talking about spiritual salvation. She's talking about being cured of her ailment, being made well. The New King James being made well. My version has cured. This text does not tell us if any or how many of those who are physically healed actually came to Jesus for, with, for spiritual salvation and how many are actually saved. It doesn't say that the Lord was requiring faith in him as a savior in order to receive healing. But even if some of those reached out and touched Jesus only for physical healing, it still tells us much about our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is a powerful and he is a compassionate healer. Like we saw in Acts chapter 10, he went about doing good and healing all those who are oppressed by the devil. Jesus is God, and God is good. God is only good. First John says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus is only capable of doing good. And whenever his power was directed toward people, it was always directed to do them good. Jesus' miracles were not random displays of power. They were not just sideshow spectacles. When he, when he worked a miracle on a person, he did them good. He healed their blind eyes. He made deaf people hear. He made crippled people walk. His miracles were not just sideshows of spectacular power. They were acts of goodness toward people who were needy and broken. Jesus is an able healer. He's a willing healer. He's powerful. He's compassionate. We should all see that. Yet another display of Jesus' power mixed with his compassion. But now I want to speak to unbelievers. I assume that some of you are probably not in the faith, perhaps some of you children. But I also speak to believers because we're supposed to be talking to unbelievers. And I realize that when I address unbelievers, I'm trying to be an example to you as to how to address unbelievers. There's a message here for unbelievers. Jesus didn't merely come to save bodies and to heal bodies. His miracles on bodies were tokens or pictures of a deeper and more lasting 
healing or salvation. And that is the salvation of the whole person, which begins with the inner person, the soul. So when Jesus healed a blind man, as he does in John 8, he follows with, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What he's saying, I did not come merely to give sight to your physical eyes. I came to give sight to the eyes of your heart so that you will see God for who he is, see yourself for who you are, and see the way of salvation and have life, sight that serves not only your eyes, but serves your whole life. When he feeds the multitude, as he does here in this chapter, in John, he goes on to say, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He didn't come merely to quench physical thirst and merely to satisfy physical hunger. He came to give deep down satisfaction in our souls in bringing us into a relationship to God. He's the bread of life, not merely physical life. He's the bread of spiritual life that brings us to a living relationship to God. When he raises Lazarus from the grave, he goes on to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who believes in me shall never die. You see, he raised Lazarus, but Lazarus died again. It was only a temporary resurrection. But he uses that on occasion to say that I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you die and you will, you will never die. Because he came primarily to bring us eternal life. And if any one of you is here and you are not a believer, you need to pursue Jesus for spiritual salvation in the same way that these people of Gennesaret sought him for physical healing for their loved ones. And if you're going to receive salvation from Jesus, what do you need? First of all, you need a knowledge of Jesus. Do you notice that these people recognized Jesus? They had a knowledge of Jesus. That's why they sought him. They recognized that he had the power to heal and was willing to heal. They recognized him. They, they knew something about Jesus. That's why they pursued him. And you need to know something about Jesus if you are to pursue him for salvation. You need to know who he is. And who is he? He is the Son of God. He is God the Son, second person of the Trinity, God in the form of man, fully God and fully man. You need to understand what he came to do. Because we are a race of sinners, and we have incurred this debt to God that we cannot pay, but must pay it forever in hell. Jesus, out of love for a race of sinners, came down to earth, lived a perfect life that was not subject to the judgment of God, and then he offered himself as a sacrifice to die in our place, to suffer the wrath of God that we deserve for us, so that if we turn from our self-centered ways and put our trust in Jesus, God will take all of our sin, put it on Jesus. He will suffer for it. We will be free from the judgment of God. We will be forgiven. We will have the gift of eternal life, and we will live with God forever. If you're to come to Jesus, you need to recognize him for who he is and what he has done. 
And then further, like these people of Gennesaret, you need to pursue Jesus while he may be found. Remember, these people aggressively pursued Jesus because he was there on their shores, and they didn't know how long he was going to be there. They wanted to seize the opportunity. Jesus is here. We better get to him while he's here. Seize the opportunity. And if you're an unbeliever, you need to come to Jesus while he may be found. Now, you might ask, Pastor, what do you mean by that, while he may be found? Well, you know, there are a lot of people we meet in life, and they say, you know, I've got time for God and Jesus later on in life. I'm young. I want to live my life. I want to enjoy life. I want to sow my wild oats later in life. I'll think about God. I'll think about Jesus, and maybe then I'll come to him. My dear friend, that is a very dangerous way to think. The Bible says you do not know what a day may bring forth. You do not know if you will be alive tomorrow. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Once you die, your fate is sealed, your destiny is sealed. It is too late. You can't come to God after you die, and you don't know when you're going to die. Children die. Teenagers die. Not only must you come to Jesus in this life before you die, I think it's safe to say there are special times when the Lord comes near. He was near to the people of Gennesaret. He was on their shores. He was in their midst. And there are special times in life when the Lord draws near to you. That's an opportunity to seize. What are those times? When you are being taught the good news about Jesus in a Christian home. When you're coming to hear the good news about Jesus preached in church. When you're surrounded by Christian friends, those are the times to come to Jesus. When perhaps you're thinking, coming to realize, you know, I'm not such a good person, as good a person as I thought I was. I really have no purpose in my life, no meaning in my life. My, my life is on a treadmill. I'm depressed. I'm without purpose. I'm without meaning. That's a time to come to Jesus. It's a dangerous thing to put off coming to Jesus because your heart will become harder and harder. The walls of resistance will become thicker and thicker. And listen to Proverbs 29.1. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will be suddenly broken beyond remedy. Don't put off coming to Jesus. Come to him while he may be found, while he is near. You don't know if he's going to return again. And then like the people of Gennesaret, an unbeliever needs to come to Jesus earnestly, humbly, and believing. That's how these people came. They came imploring him. They came begging him. If you're going to come to Jesus for salvation, you're going to have to see that you have a desperate need for him. Nobody ever comes to Jesus. None of you Christians ever came to Jesus in a ho-hum fashion. As I like to say, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, oh, I think I'll become a Christian today. It'll be a nice thing to do. I've been putting it off for a while. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that says, those who come into the kingdom of heaven take it by violence. There is a holy violence by which people enter the kingdom. Not a physical violence, but there's a violence in your soul to enter the kingdom. How so? There's a sense that I am disgusted with my life. 
I'm tired of living this life apart from God. You know, repentance has been called the vomit of the soul. Vomiting is not fun. Repentance is not pleasant. But you have to get to the place where you're disgusted with your life apart from God. There's a violence as you realize how self-centered and self-absorbed and how separated from God you are. And you need to come with a holy violence by which you plead with God for mercy, like the man in the parable, beating on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. They beg Jesus for healing, and you need to beg Jesus for salvation. They came humbly. They didn't come with a sense of entitlement as though Jesus owed them something. Jesus owes us nothing. Jesus owes none of us salvation. They came humbly just asking to touch the fringe of his cloak. And you must come to Jesus humbly, undeservingly, like that man again in the parable who was too ashamed to lift up his face to heaven. And his only hope was, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And you need to come believing the well-known best-known verse of the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him. The Philippian jailer asked Paul, what shall we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't come to Jesus because he's kind of a nice ornament or a nice supplement to your life. You come to Jesus because you desperately need him to give you life, life with God, life eternal, and to spare you the wrath of God and hell. You need to come believing that he is everything to you. He's not just an addition, not a little supplement to your life, but you need to come denying all trust in yourself, all trust in mankind, all trust in any institution, any ceremony, and saying with the, the hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And if you come to Jesus, understanding who he is and what he has done, and you come humbly seeing your desperate need for him, asking for mercy, you come believing, you will experience spiritually what these people experience physically. They were cured. They were saved from their sickness, and you will be saved from the worst sickness, sin, and from the wrath of God. You will be forgiven. You will become a child of God. You will have life eternal. But then I close by saying this passage has something to say to us as believers. Did you notice that these people of Gennesaret were bringing their sick loved ones and friends to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need to bring the spiritually sick to Jesus. These people knew the needs of their loved ones, that they were sick, they were crippled, they were blind, and they were determined to bring them to Jesus. And when Jesus came their way, they made every effort to bring these afflicted and needy ones to Jesus. The question for you, Christian, and for me, is are you doing the same? You and I have family members. We have friends, acquaintances. We have neighbors who do not know Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the only hope of eternal salvation. Are we being like those people of Gennesaret in seeking to bring our loved ones and our friends to Jesus? Now we can't put them on a cot and transport them to the physical Jesus. But we can 
bring them to Jesus and seek to bring Jesus to them. How? By our lives and by our lips. By living an exemplary life in front of them that reflects Christ in his grace and in his truth and by telling them the good news about Jesus. And you know, in the Bible, these two things go together. The witness by our lives and the witness by our lips. They are never divorced. Let me show you a couple of passages before we finish where the witness we have by our life and by our lip go together. In 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, Peter says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which they are, that you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Notice, there's a witness verbally. Make a defense, give an account. You've got to use words. But there's also a witness vitally that is by your life. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Be gentle, be reverent or respectful. Have a good conscience and manifest good behavior. Verbal witness and vital witness. Likewise, Colossians chapter 4, 5, and 6 combines the witness of our words and the witness of our life together. Listen to Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Verbally, you're to use speech. You're to respond vitally by your life. You're to conduct yourself with gracious speech, salty speech, wise responses. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. But then Paul tells us what that light should look like in Ephesians 5. The fruit of the light consists in goodness, righteousness, and truth. Brothers and sisters, like these at Gennesaret, who saw their sick, needy loved ones and saw Jesus and said, I've got to get my loved ones to Jesus. We have loved ones who are dying in their sins, and we need to do everything we can to bring them to Jesus. And something you can pray for me, I've just been thinking recently, it's been too long since I have fully shared the gospel with someone. And there's an ache in my soul that I, I need to do better. I need to find somebody to share the gospel with. Do you get that ache in your soul? You realize it's been days, it's been weeks since I've really fully shared the gospel with someone. I've got to tell everybody around us is dying. I've got to tell somebody I'm feeling that need now. And so let us be like the people of Gennesaret, resolved to bring our friends and loved ones to Jesus by the way we live and by the words that we speak. Let's pray, and then we'll turn to him for 72. Our Father, we thank you for the example of these people who recognized your son for who he was and what he could do and pursued him aggressively for, on behalf of their loved ones. Help us to take an example from them and to aggressively pursue bringing our loved ones, our family, our friends, our acquaintances to you, Lord Jesus. We cannot save them, but we can live righteously in front of them we can speak the words of life to them. 
Forgive our silence, forgive our cowardice, forgive our lack of love, and help us to be better witnesses for you, we pray in your name.